It's the NFL preseason. Check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you need fantasy football rankings, we've got our rankings, we've got our sleepers at fantasyfootball.theringer.com. So come listen to Danny Kelly, Greg Horlbeck, and me, Danny Heifetz, on the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. David? Yes? Going on a little trip this weekend. Oh, where are you going? I'm going on a trip I call the Texas Double. Oh. This is not a cheeseburger you get at Wendy's for 99 cents. This is a... Does the world know that Texas fast food restaurants have regional fare? I'm sure they do. We all have our regional fare. I'm not sure they do. I'm not sure they know that it's a basic cheeseburger that just includes the name Texas in the title. Maybe Wendy's does Texas that everywhere. It. Activates that Texas patriotism. Yeah, I want a Texas double cheeseburger. Yeah, well, we'll get you. you Texas will keep the double the Texas double cheeseburger when they secede from the union. <laughs> My Texas double involves two football games. Oh, Saturday in Austin, the University of Texas Longhorns versus the Alabama Crimson Tide. Wow, in what might be an absolute throttling. But it's a big game because you got two name programs. You can have both college football pregame shows on site. Wow. Not just game day, but the Fox Big Noon kickoff. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to head down there. I'm going to sit in the press box. And normally I would never do that for a Texas game because mm-hmm. I feel I couldn't, you know, wear a Vince Young jersey or scream and yell and be really goofy in the press box. But when you're 20 point underdogs to Alabama, the press box seems like a damn good place <laughs> to be. What if there's no cheering? You get AC and a buffet. I mean, what could, what more could you ask for? That's game number one. Game number two is going to be Sunday night in Arlington, Texas. Yeah. Dallas Cowboys, your Dallas Cowboys versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Sunday night football. For that one, I am sitting in the stands and I'm bringing a special companion, my son, Owen. I was going to ask. Age nine is going to be going to his first NFL game. Has he been to a college game? Or just is this his is this his first sporting event? This is first football. Yeah. We did we did a baseball game at the Angels. Oh yeah, w- sure. When he was much younger. And I remember going there playing the Texas Rangers. I had planned it all out. The Rangers hit a home run on the first at bat. It's like, oh my gosh, you got to see a home run in your first at bat. This is incredible. I'm sitting there in making memories, dad mode. And he just turned to me and he was like, is the game over yet? We, we've been through one at bat. Yeah. So then it commenced a dad mode that you baseball, know very well, where you just start buying popcorn and hot yeah. dogs and just hope that lasts for three innings. Baseball is the best sport to bring kids to, but you certainly cannot expect to sit through a whole game. You got to game plan it out really well. Maybe get there in the third or the fourth. Just so when inevitably the kid is demanding to leave by like the bottom of the seventh, at that point, you can make the call as to whether or not to be a jerk and say, no, we're staying for the end. But yeah, it's but it is for the for those like three and a half innings that the kid is enjoying being there, like we're at a, you know, county fair or a picnic or something that it's there's no better sport. And in fairness to kids. How many of us want to sit through an entire baseball game, even as adults? Yeah, we we get beer. Kids don't don't have that luxury. If you and I went to an Angels game, especially an Angels game, after three innings, would we not be looking at each other like, what do you want to do now? Mm -hmm. Get out of here, find a bar, you know, continue with our evening. Mm -hmm. 
Let's continue with this podcast. Coming up today, David, Twitter is testing an edit button. Do your tweets need and or deserve one? Plus, the end of the Chuck Todd era at Meet the Press might be nigh. Might be nigh. Is that the way to say it? We discuss both Todd and the entire genre of Sunday morning political affair shows. Plus, the athletic NFL writer Jordan Rodriguez gets us ready for the season by talking about open locker rooms, training camp fights, and covering the Super Bowl. All that and more in the press box. A part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumer Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, producer Erica Cervantes here. On Thursday, David, there was an interesting tweet from Twitter's Twitter account. It read, if you see an edited tweet, it's because we're testing the edit button. This is happening and you'll be okay. The edit feature will initially be handed to Twitter Blue subscribers. Axios reports that in its current iteration, the edit feature allows customers to change their tweets a few times, quote unquote, a few times within 30 minutes of posting. An edited tweet will appear with an icon timestamp and label to make it clear it's been modified. And tapping the icon will take viewers to a history link, which will include past versions of the tweet. Where does your red pencil come down on the Twitter edit button? Does that, it still doesn't, I mean, listen, you can see the past versions, you can see that it's been edited, but it still doesn't entirely prevent somebody from just doing like, retweet if you like dogs, and then... <laughs> 10 minutes later changing it to like retweet if you're if you like Hitler and then everybody can see who all the it's still possible um uh it's it's a really weird thing i mean it it, it seems it, all the problems are going to arise from it coming at this point so kind of so late into twitter's existence right um there will be people who are just clowning with it and trying to do stuff like i just said hopefully i'm not giving any anybody any ideas um seems like you'd be in a better situation if you sort of started here and worked and 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 tried to find whatever fix you thought was necessary as the eventual change, right? I mean, it seems like for such a public almost utility that Twitter has become, it's mind-boggling that it hasn't already happened. And not just because from a practicality standpoint, from a practicality standpoint, it is mind-boggling on its own, but it's 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 even more mind-boggling when you think about the fact that like there are massive corporations that I'm sure have leaned on Twitter numerous times over the years have been like, can we just get a function to change? We, we, we just put up an ad for a show, basically, and misspelled the title. Can we just get a fix? You know, I mean, and this is that's the sort of power that I guess is admirably Twitter has been <laughs> has, has just shrugged its shoulders at up to this point. Um, it's nice. It's going to be, you know, I, I have a handful of uh, really funny jokes over the years that that uh, would have been saved by an edit button. Um, and that's kind of where my mind goes. I don't know. What about you? Well, the typo tweet is the most enticing fix for me personally, because mm -hmm. how many times have you just tweeted something and been kind of proud of yourself for two or three seconds and then happened to look at the tweet? Oh, when you're proud of yourself, it's not happened. But when you're proud of yourself, you're checking those replies. Exactly. And then you start to look at this, look, at get some engagement here. And then you realize there's like a big fat typo right in the tweet. And it's especially bad when you, if you're like me, you go with the snarky tweet about something someone said on TV, someone misspeaking on TV, and then you couldn't even get the tweet right, which sort of undermines your point a little bit. So on those very narrow grounds, I'm looking forward to it because I would like that 30 minute window to be like, oh, whoa. <laughs> oh, little, little edit here. Excuse me. I think the irony of Twitter you and I have noted before is that Twitter is at once the most disposable medium imaginable, but has also become the media's stone tablets where as soon as it's on Twitter, it becomes a quasi official proclamation. Mm -hmm. You and I can announce something in this podcast. Okay. It's out there. It's out in the world. But if you or I tweeted it and said some personal news, that's when it would become real. Yeah. And if it is, if it has stone tablet status, 
it does feel that again, we're talking about benign actors here rather than bad actors who will inevitably pop up. But if you're a benign actor, you're like, this is the thing. This is, I am, I want to, I want to tweet this and this is important for posterity. Then you do want the ability to change that if it's so important. Yeah. But it does sort of like, as much as I'm going to be happy to see it there for selfish reasons, it does sort of, I don't know. Does does it does it take a little bit of the zip off of the form? Does it does it? I mean, Twitter mm. is your Twitter. I mean, that's I think the crux of the whole Twitter issue. I mean, the, the 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 place that Twitter finds itself in our national discourse is that it is like absolutely intrinsic. I called it a utility. You described it in a similar way. How significant it is, but it's also like like it it was sort of supposed to be a gimmick at the start, right? I mean, it was it was this is not everything to everyone that was not the purpose of the platform and um and they created or gave platform to the creation of this sort of new language this new lingua franca in in our modern internet culture and um if, you know not being able to edit your tweets is part of that <laughs> you know i mean that's kind of we were stuck with it it was a this was a a form for perfectionists or or people who really don't care and and um yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting just symbolically and how far they will sort of, well, uh, moderate has too many connotations here, but how, but how many little changes they'll make to sort of be a little bit more functional in the face of, you know, a sort of singular, I mean, sort of uh, having that personality, that identity that made Twitter what it is. Would it be heartbreaking to see that a drill tweet had been edited? <laughs> the joke massaged a little bit? Yeah. Well, the editing button too is going to, I mean, I think talking about people like drill, I think there'll be a lot of ironic non-edits too, right? Just like, mm -hmm. like pro proclamations, like if you tweet something and then you like go into edit to like delete and, re and, and re, you know, replace a period or something just to get people to say, I wonder what they changed. They click on it. Does that count towards your like engagement numbers? If the ringer <laughs> just like, if the ringer just fake edited all of its tweets just to get people to click through and see just just on the hopes that they would see some catastrophic misspelling would that help us i don't know um that'll definitely be a bit that will be a bit it will it's i mean and i think that's sort of like the real downside to all this um that this thing is the defense of it and i think it's defensible the defense of it is that it's necessary, right? I mean, it's like a really, like this is an important, just very baseline thing that a platform like Twitter should have. However, because it's coming along now, it's only going to be a bit. It's a, So it kind of flies in the face of that defense. David, a headline in the Daily Beast caught my eye. NBC's Meet the Press Shakeup puts Chuck Todd in jeopardy. It's an article by Lachlan Cartwright who notes that Meet the Press is, quote, down 21% in total viewership and 24% in the key advertising demographic compared to last year. It's a lot. The executive producer of the show was shifted over to streaming. Now a new executive producer is deciding Todd's fate. Cartwright writes, despite recently signing a two-year extension, uh, Todd has baffled many at NBC with how long he's remained atop the struggling show what do we think about chuck todd possibly being in jeopardy i mean i can't say it's too shocking um anytime you're making changes this is the sorts of things you look at and i think you know if you were coming in fresh i don't think you'd have that much difficulty finding uh um you know, critiques of Chuck Todd online. I think I said last week, the sort of running gag is not just what Chuck Todd does on Meet the Press, but that he manages to trend for some perceived, uh, you know, lack of follow-up question or whatever every every, every single week. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could, it's not, It's hard to, I mean, it's frankly, I love, I love Chuck Todd sometimes, or I like him a great deal. I think he's a real asset to NBC News. Doesn't surprise me that he got an extension, but in terms of just Meet the Press, particularly the the weekly show, I'm not talking, does Meet the Press Daily still exist? I think it does. It also got shifted to streaming in oh, a sign okay. of potentially Chuck Todd's falling fortunes. But I mean, it's it's really, it's it's impossible to watch him. I mean, since they debuted, since, I mean, no matter what your opinion is of him and, and not say that he's a slightly unconventional choice for that seat. He's not like some sort of like, you know, like 
manicured, pompadoured, you know, TV, like, you know, TV host from a movie, news host from a movie. I mean, it's, um, it, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost, I don't know. I mean, it, it, like you could make a lot of critique. It's easy to have a critique of Chuck Todd. I think the sort of ironic, interesting thing about this is that like, if Chuck Todd does get the boot, it will almost certainly not be for the reasons that people complain about Chuck Todd. Does that make sense? Okay. Keep going. Just that, like, I think that, you know, you get, you know, new people in charge, you get new producers, you whatever. And and I think that you'll probably go for a more conventional choice, you know, more like they'll probably go for the pompadour. And that's not what people what when we when we hear people talk about Chuck Todd, it to some extent sort of takes for granted his intelligence and his sort of nimbleness of thought and critiques him based on that. Well, why didn't you do a better job knowing what you're able to do? Right. Okay. I, so I'm glad you went there because if we do a little short history of Meet the Press here, Tim Russert, whatever people thought of Tim Russert's questioning style at the time, that was a high period of Meet the Press. He dies in 2008. David Gregory, who I believe did in fact have a pompadour, took over for Tim Russert. And that show was seen as being a little too TV correspondent smooth. Not mm-hmm. being, not engaging with politics in the way the internet was starting to engage with politics. Yes. So then Chuck Todd comes along in 2014, and he's seen as a guy who actually knows stuff. Formerly of the Hotline, the kind of Mister Politics of NBC, and for whatever lack of pompadour he might have had, he was seen as okay. This is now we're getting to it. We have somebody who is engaging with politics much more than your average television persona. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me that that has phased out a little bit and that the critique of Chuck Todd, whatever it is, is something like, oh, he's actually now this backbreakingly fair guy who's not asking the right questions or is trying to be backbreakingly fair to Republicans or whatever, you know, under, under the, in the Trump era, whatever it is. But that he has phased out of what people say they want from that job. But I think there's this another question, which is, do we think the Sunday show works at all anymore? Or is that simply phased out of its useful period? I mean, you and I both remember the days where you would like be flipping channels. Like you're watching, you know, Monday night wars wrestling, trying to see which Monday, which Sunday news show was, was going to grab your attention or who was doing a better job, making sure you got them all in. Um, it's not the same. It's really insignificant. There's really hard for them to find things to cover when there's 24 hour news on multiple channels, right? I mean, the, a week, a, the weekly, I mean, it was a wrap up show, I guess, or a forward looking show, but weekly was still, you know, in its heyday, pretty rapid response. You know, I mean, it's now it's a, I mean, if, if before it was like, uh, you know, a, a newspaper or at best just like a weekly column in the newspaper. Now it's a quarterly, you know, it feels like it's just so it's like, it's lagging to such an extent. And even to the extent that it's forward looking, it's, it's gotta be so zoomed out that it almost, it's difficult to find the relevance and guests and everything too. I mean, just from a very insidery perspective, you know, it's a, a almost weekly occurrence that that the inability to book so and so or or you know whoever's making themselves available becomes part of the story. But even yeah. even from a more general point of view, if you're in charge of talent booking for Meet the Press, you're not just competing with the other Sunday shows. You sort of have to keep an eye on the fact that like everybody you want to book has already been on TV ten times this week, right? And like, what are you giving? Are you going to give the the audience anything new? Or they, you know, it's it's a whole it's it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult template to be working off of right now, for sure. Has already been on 10 times this week, or is a Republican and just says, I don't do TV interviews mm-hmm. with non-Fox outlets because I'm reaching everybody I need to reach, or that's my theory of the case anyway, through Fox mm-hmm. and through or through con, you know conservative podcasts or radio or whatever it is. I, 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 so I do think there's a guest problem. And Chuck Todd's talked about this. Like, I can't get Republicans to come on my show. And, but, you know, the other thing is, I don't think they can get Joe Biden to come on their show either or as easily as they once did. 
And if you have a world, again, just because the world's changed so much where politicians are like, I don't need to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be available to do this once a year or in the case of a John McCain type couple of times a year. It's just not that important for me to subject myself to that kind of grilling. Then there is a question of, should it be a different kind of show? Should it exist at all? Should they try to raise their game in the political analysis they do? We've, we've talked about those roundtables they do at the end of the show where they bring the journalists on. Those are not nearly at the level that you could find on yeah. any crooked media podcast. For sure. Whatever your preferred well, you podcast have people, is. You have people speaking more openly on just about every podcast, right? There's a point at which you're talking about politics on television in such a different way than people are talking about politics in any other spot. Mm-hmm. That it feels like, why are people going to watch that? Well, I think that sort of gets to the crux of a lot of the critique of, of Chuck Todd. Um, you were talking about some of this before. I mean, Chuck Todd was, you know, we'll, we'll speak in mostly serious, uh, absolutely, you know, lavishing praise on guys like Steve Kornacki. Chuck Todd was sort of the er Steve Kornacki, right? Yes. I mean, he, and, and it was a real novelty when he got to, when he got the job, um, uh, to, to host meet the press. Cause he was just sort of the, you know, stats guy or like whatever, you know, but he would pop up on, on the TV screen largely to that, to that point. Um, and you're right. He was different than David Gregory, right? I mean, who has seemed to be a little bit perceived to be a little bit too polished or whatever else. Um, but I think what what really I mean the, what people really have take issue with Chuck Todd is the perception that he's like just too inside the beltway, right? That he's just like too much a part of the machine, no matter what his other positive attributes are. Mm-hmm. And and to, and that's what you basically what you just said in a different way. When you're talking about politics in a way that reg, that that the rest of the world, or at least the rest of the the conversation is discussing politics if you're if you're so different than them then the, then it's easy to perceive someone as being too beholden to the machine too 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 you know tied into it um even if that's not really the case i mean i have no doubt in the, in the world that chuck todd shows up to work every day trying to do the best possible job the best possible way he knows how right and he's probably um on on the terms that they've set for themselves feels like he's probably being successful most of the time but too, too inside the machine when everybody on Twitter and podcasts is outside, is the, machine. outside the machine. Yeah. Too backbreakingly nonpartisan, whatever that word means, when most people on Twitter and on podcasts don't care. Right. Mm-hmm. They're just like, I'm going to talk about politics in a totally different way. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to worry about that. Just feels like you're just out of phase yeah. at some point. And again, I'm not saying like, did you just cancel network news? But there's got to be a different way to do that show that isn't as reliant on politician interviews, that is more about a discussion of politics for people. And even if it's happening weekly, you can make it very, very newsy. You can come off Friday and Saturday. There's no lack of political news in our times. You can get a show ready together. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a digest. You know, and 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 I think maybe try to make it you gotta give you gotta give people something else. When it was David Brinkley and Sam Donaldson and Cokie Roberts, there were a lot of people who were reading local newspapers and saying, wow, this is my glimpse of national politics for the week. This is my glimpse inside that machine. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's like staring inside the machine all week. What what, what are you going to give them? Right. That's going to be different. There's no curtain to pull back. It's almost like, and, 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 and especially in the terms of when they're trying, I mean, when they are able to give platform to kind of big name politicians who don't do a lot a lot of other media just by default it feels like instead of pulling the curtain back they're sort of putting the curtain up right i mean they're giving platform to people who have you know come with a certain set of of expectations you know and um and it's it's tough i mean it's a, it's a, it's a it's an odd place they find themselves in because you're right we've said it a million times people don't have to do meet the press right people don't no. have to do the sunday show to get the word out joe biden <laughs> I mean, his predecessor, you know, Barack Obama proved to everybody that, you know, going on between two ferns is probably more functional for getting <laughs> message out than going on a Sunday news show. And then, you know, Trump obviously proved that that you can get your you can get your message out with a couple of tweets much more effectively than you could if you went on TV. Really reminds me of the hand wringing we've done in previous 
years about late night television or mm-hmm. sports center where everybody focuses on, well, this person who is doing it now is not like David Letterman or is not like Dan and Keith or whoever the person who did it during the golden age. And it just seems to me that that can be true, but also it, you have to focus on is that institution capable of being as great as it once was, even if it were in the best possible hands. And that's something to think about here too. Okay. Chuck Todd, let's say Chuck Todd is no longer the host of meet the press. Who is the, who is the person that's going to deliver the best possible version of that show? Well, the, I mean, I have no idea. I know that's sort of rhetorical, but, but the answer is, has to be to make a choice that now feels as bold as Chuck Todd did at the time. Right. I mean, that you almost have to make you, it, it, it has to be a choice. There's never going to be anybody that is that that rides into the meet the meet the press hosting seat, you know, on the back of a white horse with the crowd singing hosannas or whatever. I mean, there's never going to be a consensus pick for a job like this, and so it's got to be somebody who can make the most out of being, you know, an underdog <laughs> or you know just sort of the like a you know you it's got to be it, it's got to be somebody with a real angle with a real. With the, with the real point of view, um, who's going to make real decisions about it. You know, I mean, it's it's almost like when they had to pick John Stewart's replacement on The Daily Show, you know, I mean, it could there, there were, everybody had a different horse in the race and they decided to go a little bit of left field with Trevor Noah. Um, I mean, I think that there's probably, there's, I don't know if there has to be one person. Obviously, that's a, that is a, uh, a, a fairly obvious thing to say. And, you know, NBC News already has a lot of people under contract. I don't know if it has to be somebody new. Um, you know, we, I don't think anybody would be, like, uh, suffering heart palpitations if, like, Chris Hayes got the don- the nod or something, you know. But Kristen like, Welker was mentioned in this Daily Beast sure. article. Um, it's a really good choice. But I, I think that it, I think that looking at the Chuck Dodd, kind of David Gregory debate at the time, is instructive because um, I think a lot of reporters are, for whatever reason, perceived to be a little bit lightweight for the job, even though there's a lot, there's a long tradition of it. And, um, you know, it's, it, I, and part of that is because the people who host regular programs, weekly, nightly programs or whatever, we have a little bit more insight into their personalities, you know, into like what makes them tick. And I think that that gives somebody, a little bit of a deeper humanity to the to the potential audience. But I don't know. I mean, it's it's a, it's an incredibly difficult role to fill, especially because you're weighing against this perception of gravity, like the significance of this choice in a world where it's one of the most insignificant, and <laughs> I'm one of the most insignificant, but it is much less significant than than the press release, the the volume of the press release would lead you to believe. <laughs> All right, David, coming up, we're going to talk to the Athletics' Jordan Rodrigue about the NFL. But first, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always gratefully received. Speaking of college football, there was a big interception in the Penn State-Purdue game by Boilermakers DB Chris Jefferson. Here's Fox's Gus Johnson with a call. 12 yards, first down at the 48. Clifford over the middle. High and picked. Jefferson with room. Can he get a block? Chris Jefferson still on the move with the lane. Jefferson, touchdown, Purdue. After taking that interception back for a touchdown, Jefferson went to the sideline and with the Fox cameras trained on him, David, he threw up. And I mean, threw up a lot. It was an overworked Twitter joke to call the play puke six, (laughs) not pick six, puke six. Jefferson said after the game, as soon as I threw up, I started laughing because I already knew I was going to be a meme. If you let a player puke his way into your heart, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. I don't know how much Penn State Purdue you watched, but did you hear Gus Johnson's call of the winning touchdown from that game? No, I didn't. Listen to this and see if you hear something kind of funny happen to Gus Johnson's voice mid-call. Clifford sprints out, lumps it up to 
voice just kind of exploded there right in the middle of that touchdown call. <laughs> but that's Oh boy, I, I pointed that out on Twitter. I said, I don't think Gus is going to be putting this on his Emmy reel this year. <laughs> and a lot of people said, Well, you know, I like that he gets excited. I said, no, no. Excitement good. Just I think he I think if he had to do it over again, his voice would have sounded slightly differently. On How call. often can I ask you a question? Totally sure. from nothing. Michael Cole, WWE announcer who you've interviewed, has a has, sometimes you'll the people will post a fan video of him where during the biggest, biggest moments he will leave his seat. Mm-hmm. Um and just start I mean, you wouldn't know it from listening to it um but he but he gets up and just starts you know uh, uh, you know it's like lightly pumping his fists um and uh and i, I wonder do like other announcers do that i mean pat mcafee by the way is his co is, is the color commentator on that show and pat mcafee works from sta- a standing position about 75 percent of the time so um I, I don't know how much he's influenced michael cole i know he's been had a great effect on him but the the, the mainstream sports announcers in a moment like that like that like like that call we just played ever just are they jumping out of their seat f- fist pumping just trying to get the energy through from their body out out into the microphone so in my experience, football announcers stand up for the entire game. Oh, right. You see it's that on TV a lot. I, I kind of assumed that they sat down after the after the cutscenes or whatever. It seems like it, but when I've been in the booth standing behind them, they're almost always standing up for the entire game. But yes, I, I guarantee there's some, it's, I would say it's probably 90% voice with most of them, but there's got to be 10% like physical in there. Yeah. Especially a play like that. It kind of makes sense for football because they're all standing on the side. All the former players and coaches and stuff have been standing on the sideline the whole time, right? So, like, that's how they're used to watching the games. Whereas, yeah, in some other of, sports, you have you got the bench. You know, you get you, you spend some of your time in the chair. <laughs> yeah, basketball, you'd be in the chair. But think about those videos you see when we get those uh, videos they have now. When there's a last second buzzer beater, it's, I think it's usually a basketball game is when we see it most of the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'll see it with John Sterling with the Yankees. But you see the video of the announcer. They're they're almost always both going crazy vocally and going crazy physically. Mm-hmm. There's a big like whoa of something they've just seen. Yeah, not a lot of stoicism there. It's an interesting. Maybe we question. should do the, we should do the podcast standing up. I used to always say I did a better job when I would do like radio hits. That I w- I was way better if I could just be pacing around my room than if I was sitting at a desk. I've heard that somebody told me the other day that in fact that said so you should stand up. Your voice will sound you'll sound better when you do the podcast. Hmm. I haven't taken him up on that yet. All right, just got to figure out how to get this microphone affixed to my chest, like a Bob Dylan <laughs> harmonica or something. Or Nathan Fielder with the uh, laptop on his chest. Yeah, exactly. All right, David. NFL season begins Thursday with Rams Bills, and let us bring someone in who can get us fired up, journalistically speaking. Jordan Rodriguez, a Rams beat writer for The Athletic, co-host of the 11 Personnel Podcast. Jordan, welcome to the Press Box. Thank you guys so much for having me. As I had said off air and will probably repeat to the point of you guys being uncomfortable, um, huge fan of the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I, I know I'm not uncomfortable, David. How are you feeling about this? I, I feel great about it. I really I take praise very, very comfortably. <laughs> I want to start, Jordan, by asking you about a fight you covered on August 25th. This was not the typical things are getting a little chippy out there preseason fight. It was a fight at a joint practice between the Rams and Bengals where Aaron Donald allegedly was swinging a helmet. What was it like to cover that, and what is it like to cover that in the two weeks since it happened? Great question. First of all, you feel when you're on a beat the way that I try to cover my beat, you're you're there for everything, right? You sort of float in and fade into the background, but you try to see everything and you try to, more importantly, feel everything. Like you try to really open yourself up to catching whatever uh, vibe is going on that day from a variety of people and just holding it all in that space and and navigating that. And so you felt, uh, after all the politeness of the first day, which was very one of the most efficient joint practices I'd ever seen in my entire life um, between Sean McVay and and, uh, and, and Cincinnati Bengals and Zach Taylor. And then the next day, you just sort of felt something 
is going to happen. You just sort of felt it brewing. There were a couple of skirmishes um, between the first team defense along the defensive line and then the first team offense on the offensive line for the Bengals. And you felt, okay, the tone has been set. Uh, A helmet came off previously um, before the Aaron Donald incident. And so you sort of felt like the players lock into this understanding that something would happen. And I say that to mean you have to hold those feelings and, and navigate them because you are quite literally compartmentalized away from the situation. You're um, sort of like held in a pen, essentially. You're behind a line. And that's your viewing area for, for where you can watch the practice. So as you feel that and you're sort of trying to accurately navigate that situation and see what the, the, the key players are and, and see how things are escalating, most importantly, instead of covering just the, the outburst itself, you want to see kind of what led to it, right? And so you file away these details and then all of a sudden the big one comes, right? <laughs> and um, that was that was chaotic. And like, I will echo Sean McVay and Zach Taylor both to say that I think both teams are really lucky that nobody got hurt. I think that there were a lot of coaches who also felt that energy and were immediately ready to jump in. A lot of personnel people that immediately dove into the the scrum and pulled guys away from each other. And in the in the fallout of it, um, you know, we're there on site. But other than Sean McVay's comments at the podium, the Rams didn't want to comment on the situation. The league let it left it up to the club to determine you know, how discipline, if any, would be doled out and, and what kinds of conversations that they would have internally. And because it was a practice and not a game and the, the Rams had sort of released a statement to us. There were three of us reporters who were actually on site in Cincinnati and the Rams sort of released a statement after we pressed them um, to do so. And then it sort of quiets for, and then it flares back up again when players are made available for the first time after, after that fight and Aaron was this week. So it's a, it's a quick outburst with a lot of ripple effects and then sub ripple effects that happen afterward and filing each of those away and placing each of those things within the context required, I think is always a challenge on a, on a beat, but certainly in a situation like this, that was, um, you know, there was a lot going on and it was a, a lot of things happening at one time. How did you find Donald when you got your first crack at him yesterday? He was good. You know, he, the situation had settled long ago in in his mind, right? And it was a, a moment that happened at a practice. He and Sean McVay and Eric Henderson, their D-line coach, Raheem Morris, their uh, defensive coordinator, they had the conversation. And, you know, the nature of that conversation may never know on the record what that was, right? But that at that point, you know, football players and football coaches are very good at compartmentalizing, right? You guys have seen this for years. We've all seen it for years and they'd already moved into a, a new phase. That being said, he did know and, and understand that the question would be asked because this was his first public facing appearance. And what I thought was interesting was he was open to talking about it in a way where he, that he still wanted to continue the conversation forward focusing on the bills and and all of that, but wasn't frustrated with the questions, um, wasn't irritated by the questions, understood that the questions would come. And at the same time, there was this very small moment of, um, he's very close to the vest, right? When you're around someone every day, you can see those tiny moments where that sort of shell around them cracks open just a little bit. And then you see maybe the way someone's brain is working and the way their heart is working too. And there was a moment a reporter in the room um, posed a question about, do you feel, and I'm paraphrasing horribly, but the, the question was something like, do you feel like this adds anything different or extra to what you want to go out and accomplish Thursday night and the rest of this year, understanding that there are a lot of people that are being critical of you right now? And Aaron sort of paused for a moment and said, of me? Almost like that realization where yes, people are talking about this and talking about this in the context of his legacy. And I think there was that moment where um, that was a very real moment. And it was a very real understanding of, you know, first of all, thank God no one got hurt. And then also a very real moment. He is that guy. Everybody is going to be watching him. They have been watching him and and probably now even more so as he continues to build to this legacy. Uh, One season after, you know, 
perhaps considering retirement. So this mm-hmm. is, you're seeing these things happen in real time. And, you know, we talk a lot, I know you guys talk so much about journalism on this podcast. That's what, that's what beat writing is. That's a moment, right? You're there for the moment. You cover the moment. You understand the complexity of that moment and how many things can be true and also evolving at the same time. You mentioned uh, during the, the, the fight being physically compartmentalized um, and, and uh, obviously, uh, as you just told I mean, no us, one is like physically holding no, me no, back. I no, I, I, <laughs> hold me back. I, I was hold not fighting. <laughs> I should hope not. But, but, but you, you know, and also this whole story, it ends on the moment. That is beat writing. But up to yeah. the, uh, but, but prior to that, there was the, there was the incident. And then there was uh, this period of lack of availability. And this has been a kind of an ongoing conversation on this podcast and throughout various sports. Um especially in recent years that, you know, media access is a lot more managed or access to people like you is a lot more managed than it has been in the past. Is that, uh, do you feel like it was, it was more guarded over in this case than it is in general, or do you deal with that sort of, I don't want to say frustration, but I'll just say frustration a lot. And for the listeners, tell us what you do in the intervening period. Like what is the process of trying to report out this story when the team is basically locked it up? Yeah, good question. And it's it's interesting, right? Because again, constantly moving, constantly changing. And, and all you can do is, is ask, right? And so he was scheduled to do a press conference that day. I think there's a level of understanding why it didn't happen immediately after. Like they, they closed practice right after mm-hmm. the, the fight. So I think there was a level of understanding on our part as beat writers um, why that didn't happen on that mm-hmm. day specifically. But, you know, we were all also in town. So there was that repeated effort to, does he want to comment? Do you want us to come to the team hotel? Does he want to address the situation? Does Sean want to say anything further? Because Sean then got up to the, to the lectern and, and, you know, discussed what had happened. And, and interestingly, he did so before I think anyone was aware that there was a video. Um, and, what people should remember about this too is that this was a closed practice. So there were some fans that were season ticket holders and media is not allowed to record any of the live periods. So a fan had a video of the incident. And so everything's moving and happening so fast. And Sean and and Zach Taylor, they meet and they sort of go over what everyone's going to say about this. And in the scrum, as we're maneuvering toward our, our media area to, you know, ask questions, we're also sort of keeping an eye on who's coming over, um, who's going to, is anyone going to approach anyone and, and have a discussion with them before this? And, and then Sean came, comes over and I, and I don't think, I can't speak for him, but I don't think he realized or knew that, that there was a video of this situation or multiple videos of this floating around because they planned it purposefully to be a closed practice, a closed workout so that they could run some of their fuller um, manifested installs and, and all of those things. and so this all is happening so fast. And then, so because of the context of the video as well of the helmet swinging specifically and, and of Aaron sort of falling backwards and has the helmet in his hand and then the photos as well that came out, the still photos, that context required further follow-ups because there was no indication that he had seen the reaction and the commentary that was now starting to swell from this incident. Sean McVay, I mean, there was no um, indication in the time of his initial comments. So you continue to follow up and you continue to see, you know, is there anything formal or informal that you're able to share about the situation? And you just keep that line of dialogue open. And I think we always knew that we were going to get Aaron at some point. And there was that understanding that this would be probably the time when we would address this, this with him. And then I, I saw earlier, a couple of days earlier, you know, he had done some, some sponsored things with um, some marketing people and the people on those calls had asked him about it and that kind of got out there. So there was kind of these added ripple effects that I don't necessarily think if I'm on the perspective of the player or if I'm on the perspective of, of um, you know, the, the PR staff that, that I don't know if that was ideal for them in terms of managing the situation. But there was this sense of when Aaron comes to the podium at the Rams facility ahead of, you know, Rams bills, this is probably going to put the period at the end of the sentence in terms of this specific situation um, and its direct context. Again, a couple of weeks after it initially happened. So you continue to keep that line open. You continue to understand this is 
the less than glamorous part of the job. Um, but also it's something that it's a thread that needs to be followed all the way through in order to completely and fully do the job the way that it's directed. On Sunday, Jordan, you tweeted that the Rams have kept an open locker for Odell Beckham Jr. in case they re-sign him at some point. That was news, but the other news to me was that you were standing in a locker room. Right. After a couple of years of not standing in a locker room because of COVID. How does your job change when you have an open locker room? Yeah, that's. I could probably talk for several hours about that change uh, because I started covering this team in 2020 and I covered them not only from a different time zone to start out because uh, everything was was locked down, but after I had driven across the country uh, to get to Los Angeles, then I started covering them via Zoom, right? <laughs> and via glass <laughs> partition, we would literally talk to Jared Goff through a partition um, and several screens. You know, we were in a tent outside and we would look in and it'd be like kind of we're, you know, at a drive through window ordering takeout from him or something. <laughs> and it was odd. And then you got used to it, right? And, and um, you know, unfortunately, we got used to it. And so then coming back in and the Rams opened the lo- their locker room for the first time. Uh, teams across the league did it differently, but the Rams opened their locker room really for the first time, their, their daily locker room um, on Sunday. So that was the very first time that any of us had been in there. And there's all of these things where there's how you feel about the situation, which is awesome. I can finally have real human conversations with people while also making sure they're aware that I'm respecting their space because I'm now in their space for the first time. Um, and there's not a computer screen separating us or, or anything like that, or, or we'd been doing interviews outside, um, but they'd always been organized by a public relations official. So there was never that organic pitch. And I was just saying this in my group chat. I'm in a group chat with a, a bunch of women uh, who also cover the NFL. Um, shout out to the group chat. Uh, we all need those, I think. And I was saying to them, I forgot the adrenaline rush, just the joy of having a conversation organically with a player, talking through something that you'd been thinking about writing about them or their position group, in this case, one of the offensive linemen, and watching them not only understand the idea, but share the vision, watch them buy in, watch them say, hell yeah, let's do that. I mean, that's such a unique, as a storyteller, that's such a unique adrenaline rush that I, you, you didn't realize how much you missed it over the last couple of years and doing so in an organic way, right? There's no third party um, telephone operator to sort of communicate that through. And, and I will say, like, I, I do commend the Rams. I think they did a, a great job in the COVID years of, you know, helping me to have conversations with people. But again, it's over the phone, it's Zoom. It's, you know, at a distance outside and, and none of it feels natural. None of it feels like walking up to somebody who you want to share an idea with and organically striking up that conversation. And so it's the big moments like the Odell stuff, which to me, you know, it's funny what we find newsworthy and the players don't, right? Like that's been there. That's been there since the, the end of the season and they intentionally kept it open. Not one time did anyone mention in a, in an interview or anything, hey, this thing's still there, right? They've all said how much they want him back and all this stuff. But we walk in and we're like, oh my God, shiny object, distraction, right? Like we're all we're all enamored by this. And then and then you realize this isn't news to them. They're kind of probably all looking at us like we're insane. And then and then at, as that sort of settles, then you start to um, explore some of the corners of of places that you hadn't been before and and explore some of the ideas and and really talk to people and and shake hands and, and ask people how they are genuinely, not in a way where it's like, all right, the zoom timer's on, you know, just genuinely, how are you? And those types of things, um, the small details that you can get that turn into huge things. I'll say one thing about this team, a small detail is absolutely going to be a huge freaking thing like two months from now. Right. So it's, they just, that's just the way that they are. They live in those details. And that is something that has been really entertaining um, and exhausting about covering them. But it's also something that in that space, you can explore so much more about that, the context of it, um, how much it matters, why it matters. You mentioned driving across the country during the pandemic. Um, 
as a former resident of Charlotte, North Carolina, I'm I'm obligated to ask you how much uh, worse is Los Angeles than Charlotte? Uh, no, let me let me phrase that a different way. <laughs> I was like, whoa, man. <laughs> have you had? I'm just kidding. I've I've lived in Los Angeles too. Love it. Uh, have you had time in the post, you know, glass uh, partition era to really? Um, Think about how the Rams organization and your experience there is different than the Panthers. Are there significant changes from team to team or is it all just sort of like the strip malls look the same no matter where you are? Um, significant changes, but I think that's what helps me cover the sport in this league better is recognizing those changes. Um, everybody's going to build an ecosystem in a different way. And when you are on a beat, you are dropping yourself into that ecosystem and you're not really a part of it, but you you watch how everything interconnects, right? And it's your job to pull at those threads and to study how not just things are constructed, but how they evolve after construction. So I caught the Panthers at a very different time in their build, quote unquote, or their rebuild, um, than I caught the Rams. I caught the Rams as they were ready to take this giant gulp of air and go full sprint towards the hurdles, right? And I caught the Panthers as they were sort of, okay, what's the answer to keep this feeling that we have alive as long as possible um, amid so much change. And I think understanding the differences in the decision makers and also the decision making at that time has, for me, like I said, been a, a tremendous and fascinating study. Um, but you also, for me, it's like when you have it, when you come into different organizations and you recognize those changes, you don't necessarily weigh them in your mind as this is the right way to do it or this is the wrong way to do it. You kind of start to um, sort of expand back out and look at it as just these different galaxies that kind of exist. And some of them are expanding and some of them are contracting. And then you float to one and it's on this level. It's in this sort of arc of its story. And then you float to another and every small detail about it matters in, in that regard. And so you, don't, you almost don't compare them, but you recognize the differences are what ebbs and flows this league um, as a whole, as a whole, as it evolves and changes. But traffic's way worse here also. <laughs> so. <laughs> so last season was the first time you've had a team go all the way to the Super Bowl. What was surprising to you about the process of covering a Super Bowl? Um, it's ridiculous. What my mind immediately jumps to um, is that I, I should have gotten my hair cut earlier. Like <laughs> I should have gone to the dentist you know, these things that you don't realize you're not doing or these life things that you don't realize are not happening. Um, and again, like everybody does the job differently. For me, I felt like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see this again, right? I don't, as I saw previously, it's not guaranteed that you go back. It's not even guaranteed that you remain intact at that point. So what I need to do is sort of embody the ethos of what all these people in this building are doing again at a distance and go full send, right? Try to meet the moment as well as you can and screw whatever else, you know, screw the fallout, screw the, the cavity, right? Screw, screw the split ends, screw the lack of sleep, the probably a couple of years taken off my life at this point. Um, really because you meet that moment in the best way you can. And that's something you, you can never tell someone what it's like. You just have to live it. And you can never tell someone what you would do differently or how you would do things differently other than those small details that are inconsequential um, to, the, to the whole because um, you know, I, I, I remember it in large feelings and large moments. And, and I, I, then the, the small details I remember are like hysterically laughing you know, at how unkempt my physical state had become <laughs> by, by the end of it. You know? and, and I think that's that's the the interesting part to me is um, you've sort of you sort of let the experience take you over and change you in so many ways, but you have to keep moving forward because the space you're in has to keep moving forward. The space you're in does not slow down; it, it evolves constantly, or it should. And so, you you if you're going to cover it accurately, if you're going to tell the truth about what you're seeing, which is the base of our jobs, um, it you also have to live in that change and in that state. So. Um, it's interesting as, you know, people who are on teams that have, have got made deep playoff runs, former beat partner, Joe person. Um, he tried to warn me about it as well. He was like, you won't even know what to say after it's done. 
you'll know what you feel, but you won't even know what to say. And then you sleep for a couple of days and then you start all over. Jordan, uh, in January, the Times bought The Athletic. Uh, it's been a big topic of conversation. I heard, I heard about that. Yeah, it's I been a big topic of conversation on this show. I can imagine in your life as well, uh, in the circles that you run in. How has your life, how has your job, how has how your day-to-day changed under new ownership? Um, I actually almost wish I had a, a more exciting answer for you. I think I'm getting a new computer soon. Um, but in general, like, and, and I know I speak from a place of, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in a, a large market. I'm in a market. The team that I cover just won the Super Bowl. Um, the uh, the interest is there. The metrics are there. The things that people love about this sport and about a confluence of a large scale events that are coming into this market. Um, that's all here. So I speak from probably a place of of privilege in that of um, understanding that my day to day hasn't really changed, and I can only speak for myself in that regard. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, when you're a kid, it's one of the first, um, newspapers you probably hold in your hands. Right. And other than your local, but that, then you see the, the script at the top and the font, right. You think, wow, this is, and so you, you have those, that emotional reaction when you first hear the news. And then you, you always wonder, you know, I, I've not been in this business for as many decades as some of my, um, compatriots here, but I've also been around for layoffs in different places. Um, I've worked at newspapers. I've seen, I sort of was, in, I was in school when a lot of my pr- professors were telling me, uh, best of luck to you, thoughts and prayers out there. Like it's going to suck. And you think, can I even do this? Can, is this, is there going to be a space that's possible for me to exist in, in the way that I feel I am meant to exist? Um, which so many writers and so many journalists are, are going through right now. So for me on a, like I said, an extreme place of privilege, my day-to-day personally has not changed. I'm still trying to do my best covering this, um, this team and the NFL as a whole. But I understand that with any sort of acquisition of this nature, especially the magnitude that it was and, and one that um, I think a lot of people probably, you know, could see as a natural escalation of how this, these companies would maybe exist or how these companies will exist into the future. Um, you know, I, I know that that with that comes questions constantly and it comes evolution in, in certain ways. Um, and it comes, I think fairly anxiety about what does this look like? Um, but where I'm at, I feel like I said, lucky and, and certainly privileged because I, all I can control is what I put into how I do my job. And if it fits with the way that they want me to do my job, then I guess that's, that's great. And it's so far, it seems like it has. Um, but I am, I am also curious to see long-term, um, what this looks like and what kind of workplace it is and what the environment is like. And I think, um, I think that's fair. I think that's always fair when something like this happens. You can read Jordan Rodriguez on a New York times owned website. The Athletic, and also hear her on the podcast 11 Personnel. Jordan, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hope I didn't ramble too much. I just got so excited there for a minute. (laughs) All right, it's time for another edition of David Shoemaker Guesses the Strained Pun Headline. Yeah. Today's headline, David, comes from me. I was reading Twitter the other night looking for House of the Dragon content. And I came across a Slate story by Susan Matthews. And this is really the perfect Slate story. Let's get out there and say, is this show really any good? (laughs) That's the column I want from Slate. I really do. Mm -hmm. Susan Matthews not only wondered whether the show was very good, but also wondered if the show wasn't a little boring. A little boring in those early episodes. I think you've got enough. What was Slate's strained pun headline? Um, before I, I have to, I, I, halfway through your description, I get stuck on a headline that is definitely not the answer, but I wonder okay. if any, I wonder if anybody's used like HBO lays a dragon egg with different, <laughs> any of the big pans. Um, uh, okay. Boring, um, dull, uh, long winded, um, exhausting, tired, um, doesn't move very fast, David slow, um, 
slow motion. Uh, mm, I remember the title of this. Yeah, I know. HBO uh, House, oh, House of the House of the Dragon. D R A G G I N apostrophe. Uh, close enough. More like House of the Dragon. Oh, Dragon. All right. More like House of the Dragon. I would go with Dragon. This column was written before episode three. No right. spoilers. It wasn't as much Dragon. Mm-hmm. With the apostrophe in in episode three. Yeah, that's He great. is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes coming tomorrow on the press box. There's a new face, David, in NFL broadcasting, at least on the first teams. He is Kevin Burkhart of Fox, replacing Joe Buck as Fox's number one team and calling the Super Bowl in his first year in that job. I went down to the Fox lot to talk with him the other day. Plus, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>